Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast extension for ROI Show 544. Our guest today is Dr. Timothy Stinson, Associate Professor of English and University Faculty Scholar at North Carolina State University, and we're talking about teaching Chaucer. Our history buff today is Rick Sweet. So Rick, start us off. Okay, Jay, I think I'll do that. Uh, Tim, uh, you uh, mentioned uh, the in our broadcast portion uh, the revolutionary approach that Chaucer took to uh, writing about uh, living in the world, if you will. Did his uh, critique, and some of this has got to be a critique of society, did that create any, any controversy among the upper class and the royalties? As, as far as we know, there was no controversy, but that is something where we don't have much evidence. And this, this is what we would call reception history, right? How is, how is a work received by the public or by its readers after it, uh, after it appears? And in the case of medieval poetry, that's always very hard to gauge. You know, if you look at, of course, today, when a, when a film comes out or something like that, you get, you get movie reviews, you have this whole online um, response to it, and, and so forth. It's quite a robust amount of information. And this goes back centuries. You know, if you're looking at 19th century literature, for example, there's quite a lot of surviving periodicals with reviews. We have correspondence of the author, often in many cases, with people writing about the works. But nothing like that tends to survive from the Middle Ages. So we don't have really any evidence of reception aside from the other poets who very soon after Chaucer dies are, are calling him the father of English poetry and praising him and then trying to kind of write in these new ways he created. But we don't really have anything like in terms of like um, uh, the the type of response you mentioned with the royal family or other readers becoming upset or that sort of thing. Hey, Tim, I'm just curious, and again, I think our, our listeners might find this interesting. In a very loose usage of that word, who are Chaucer's contemporaries? Who are the, the medieval poets and writers out there um, who would have had influence on him or who he would have considered to be peers or, or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. What, you know, where, where's the literarily, where's the context that he fits into? So there's a, there's a literary culture at court where poems are, poems are read and poems are also cast around. We don't really have that sort of publication that we might think of today. Of course, this is pre-print. So, so he takes his position in this courtly setting of fine arts and letters. And I would say maybe his closest contemporaries would be, in terms of English poets, John Gower would be one of those. In the in Troiskin say he mentions two people by name. There's uh, Strode and Gower, these, these two English authors, whom he considers to be his peers. Uh, Gower is another well-known poet from the time who composed in all three literary languages of the time, English, French, and Latin. And then you have other poets such as John Lydgate, who are championing Chaucer soon after his death and writing in his model 
sort of conspicuously. And then this goes on. You know, if you read something like um, Spencer's Fairy Queen, you know, this is an early modern poem, then you see he's really picking up from Chaucer and conspicuously um, by his own admission and carrying on. Um, Troilus reworking, Tro- I mean, sorry, Shakespeare reworking Troilus and Crusade as Troilus and Cressida and so forth. So, so you might think about in those ways, there's there's kind of the, the literary culture that produces a poet like Chaucer. There are the, the handful of poets whom we know by name who were his contemporaries. And then there's kind of that historical, that very large historical group who are in dialogue with him as well. Tim, let me <clears throat> jump in on here just to follow up. Does Chaucer see himself in any way as a recipient of that sort of uh, French romantic uh, writing that that's going on on the on the continent, or um, some of the um, uh, epic uh, hero sorts of things like Arthur and Roland and and so forth that are also sort of percolating along? Does he consider himself part of that? that kind of thing, or does he really see himself as something different? So those are the, so two parts. One, the, the French courtly poetry, there's no doubt that he sees himself in that tradition. So this is very much what he's, what he's doing when he writes um, the Parliament of the Files, Book of the Duchess. One of the most influential medieval French poems from the generation before Chaucer was, was a very long um, allegorical romance called The Roman de la Rose. It's a dream vision. Chaucer constantly draws from that. He translated part of it into Middle English, and he's importing French verse forms, you know, this idea that you have a certain number of syllables per line and a certain pattern of end rhyme that you see in, in that romance poetry. And he is... Um, He's also directly importing narratives from a range of French genres, from the fabliaux to the romance. The, the thing I think that's really uh, surprising and remarkable about Chaucer is that, that he, was, he was a diplomat to Italy. I mentioned that very briefly in the broadcast portion. And he obviously acquired the ability to read Italian at a fairly high level. And this was extremely rare in 14th century England. There is much more Italian literacy in, in uh, Renaissance, early modern English, England. But he's reading Dante, Boccaccio, mm. whom he might have met when he was there, and Petrarch. He's reading all these Italian poets and reworking the, them substantially also. So he's drawing from two main continental sources, Italy and, and French. One of those is very normal in English literary culture since since French was a widely spoken language in England at the time. But the Italian the importation of Italian literary forms was was virtually unheard of. You know, no one really spoke Italian at the time. The other the other thing you mentioned, Arthurian poetry Chaucer seems to take um a few humorous swipes at that. He he doesn't seem um, influenced by it so much as bemused by it. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of debate about, for example, his, his Squire's Tale in Canterbury Tales, which, which is a, it's not Arthurian, but it's a kind of romance you might get in Arthurian. And it's, it has this, you know, it's, even on the surface, it's weird. You know, this guy shows up uh, with three presents for the ruler. There's a brass horse that will teleport anywhere. There's a, there's a mirror that will show you what anyone's thinking. 
And there, of course, is a ring that lets you talk to birds. And you're like, what? You know, this is completely random. And so the, 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 the story is never finished. And people debate, like, whether it's kind of a, a parody on romance itself and thus the squire's youth or whether it was an honest effort at telling these romance stories. But he doesn't really, he doesn't really go in for that. And there's a lot of that poetry happening elsewhere in, in England at the same time, but that's not really the, the vein that he minds, if you would. Okay. Rick. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just feeling like a piker, you know what I mean? <laughs> Tim, uh, the uh, Canterbury Tales is probably the most popular and uh, the most widely known and loved of Chaucer's work. What other uh, works uh, uh, are as long-lived and as popular as Canterbury Tales? Do you mean by Chaucer or just by anybody? Chaucer. Well, we're actually we're focusing on Chaucer in this particular program, but we can do another program on some <laughs> other author. <laughs> no, Chaucer. Yeah, so certainly, you know, there's a few things that Chaucer seems to mention as part of his um, part of his output that, that we've lost. But beyond that, you know, we have the, the major poems being um, Canterbury Tales, Troilus and Crusade, the Book of the Duchess, the Legend of Good Women, the Parliament of Fowls. Um, and there are some, some unfinished uh, dream visions as well. And so, so that's, that's the, there are, there are some other things too. He translated Boethius. He translated, um, I mentioned part of Ramon de la Rose, and he uh, he was a, he was a, a Renaissance man before the Renaissance, I guess, because he was very interested in astronomy. He wrote a treatise on the astrolabe, which is a very new instrument at that time, for example. And so all these things survive. So I guess to be uh, to be exact about the question, you know, all of it's as long lived in that it's it's survived as as long. However. Nothing has had the impact of the Canterbury Tales. I think closest to that would be Trotus and Crusade, which which is again in terms of poets and in terms of um, critics, that is often regarded as truly his masterpiece by those who really know Chaucer. They'll say, "Well, yeah, okay, Canterbury Tales is a lot of fun. There's a lot of genius in there." But wow, you know, Trust Me Say it is is definitely his most perfect poem in terms of it being completely rendered and arriving at the vision he had for it. So I think those those two, it's you know, it all survives, so it's all equally long lived, I suppose. But certainly the nothing touches Canterbury Tales in terms of impact or, or popularity. Tim, I get the uh the luck of having the last question here and I am amazed whenever anything from the past survives. Um, usually it requires a great deal of either foresight by somebody or interest by somebody or just dumb luck or maybe a combination of all of those things. How does Chaucer's work make it into, you know, survive so long? I know, you know, once the printing press comes along, it helps a lot because then you can get mass production and, and multiple copies of things out into the, the world. Um, but, you know, is there, a, is there a family member? Is it part of his will? Did it end up in some nobleman's library somewhere that, that then moved forward? How is it that we get Chaucer uh, through, you know, the, the possibility of losing everything? 
Yeah, so do, so for in Chaucer's case, you know, it only needs to survive less than a century before it can make the jump to print. And so it does that. I think it does that because there are enough copies in circulation and it's popular at the time. And th- however, even from Chaucer's time, we the, all the evidence suggests that we have lost most of what was written at that time, that, that surviving is the exception. The vast majority of poems survive in one or two copies, and their their survival looks fortuitous. But in Chaucer's case, I think that his he was popular so soon after his death, or really, you know, during his life, that the number of copies and the esteem in which other poets held him is the real reason. There's no there's not there's nothing along the lines of you know uh, this particular family kept the manuscript or, or kept the memory alive so much as as the popularity resulted in continuous recopying and then it was still popular and printing came along so it was an obvious target for printing for the first for the first printing press um there are a lot of poets who are contemporary chaucer like one of the ones that is well known is the gawain poet you know he wrote sir gawain green knight pearl um, we think there are four poems by the same person and all these survive in one book with no other copies. We don't know who wrote them, and we have no real evidence of the reception. So it's as if these poems just fall from the sky. We don't know, like, where did they come from? That's more normal than, than Chaucer, right, where we have this, this a lot of knowledge of him as a person and a lot of evidence of him being valued right from the start. So his, his survival is, is, in that sense, explainable. And I guess less involves less luck than most of the things that survive. All right. We would like to thank our guest for this 544th show, Dr. Timothy Stinson, Associate Professor of English and University Faculty Scholar at North Carolina State University. We've been talking about teaching Chaucer. The history buff for today was Rick Sweet. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at tunein.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find a decade of ROI shows. And you can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at Station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.